This is the Katie Fang Show, and I'm Katie Fang, live from Telemundo Studios in Miami, Florida. And here's the week that was. South Carolina will vote on Saturday, but on Sunday, I'll still be running for president. I'm not going anywhere. Vladimir Putin killed my husband, she says. I will continue to fight for my country. Navalny is a very sad situation, but it's happening in our country, too. Uh, we are turning into a communist country in many ways. Do you think paying for uh, President Trump's legal bills is something that would, is, is of interest to Republican voters? Absolutely. These lights are so bright in my eyes that I can't see too many people out there. But uh, I can only see the black ones. I can't see any white ones, you see. That's how far I've come. Texas Hold'em went number one on Billboard's Hot Country Songs wow. chart. That makes Beyonce the first black woman to ever hold that position. IVF patients in Alabama tonight devastated, furious, and scrambling as more fertility clinics abruptly stop IVF procedures. I just want to be a mom. And it's wild to me that the state that I've called home has more say over that than I do right now. According to Alabama Supreme Court Justice Tom Parker, God created government and the Holy Spirit is there when he's performing his job as Chief Justice. So this week, he led the charge that frozen embryos are minor children and that human life cannot be wrongfully destroyed without incurring the wrath of a holy God. Sound extreme? It is. And we've got the latest on what's to come later in the show. We begin today's show in South Carolina, where right now voters are heading to the polls for the state Republican presidential primary. Former Governor Nikki Haley is hoping for a strong showing in her own home state, casting her own vote a short time ago. But recent polls are pointing to a big victory for Donald Trump. In their final pitches to voters, Haley painted herself as the best chance to win in a general election against President Biden, while Trump attempted to court black voters with his own racist selling points. Joining me now is NBC News correspondent Ali Vitali, who literally just got out of a gaggle with Nikki Haley. Ali, get us caught up to speed on what Nikki Haley had to say. Hey, Katie, how are you? We're currently in the process of maybe being moved right now, so our conversation mm -hmm. may be short-lived. But when I just spoke with Governor Haley, one of her messages here today was about the RNC in reaction to comments that Trump has made that he wants to see Ronna McDaniel out of that position. I'm going to walk a little bit here because we are being kicked off of the island while we are live. But one of the things that she said when I asked her who she would want to be the RNC chair, she said, certainly not a family member of an active candidate. The other thing I know that you're interested in, Katie, is the fact that we see uh, Trump now talking last night about black voters and their response to him. Haley called his comments there disgusting. I'm going to send it back to you because we are in a bit of a mobility situation, but that's the latest from the gaggle that we just finished here. No worries, Ali Vitali. It is live TV. Grateful for you anyway. That was NBC News correspondent Ali Vitali getting us started. And joining me now with more for this conversation is Danielle Moody, the host of the Woke AF podcast, co-host of the Daily Beast's New Abnormal podcast, and the co-host of Democracy-ish podcast. We're also joined by Lucy Caldwell, political strategist and campaign manager for Joe Walsh's 2020 presidential campaign. Two of our best and brightest getting us started today. Danielle, I'm going to play 
those comments on race that were made by Donald Trump last night. I want to get your reaction on the other side. Take a quick listen. Then I got indicted a second time and a third time and a fourth time. And a lot of people said that that's why the black people like me, because they have been hurt so badly and discriminated against. And they actually viewed me as I'm being discriminated against. I mean, Danielle, that was one of several comments. He also, he being Donald Trump, talked about the fact that black people like the fact that his mugshot made it to a T-shirt because that's what black people like. I mean, you you couple that with what Donald Trump said about black people in sneakers just a few days ago. And I, my, I, will, I will share this with you guys. I showed that to my husband. He thought it was a deep, deep fake. He's like, there's no way that man said that. Danielle, your thoughts? I mean, I wish that it was a deep fake, but the reality is, is that Donald Trump himself is a deep fake. He is a liar. He is a grifter. And he believes very little about black people and what they actually have to offer this country, right? That, oh, so long as you get arrested and you have sneakers, those are the things that black people are aligned with. I don't know how much more racist you can be than what Donald Trump has provided and continues to provide. But people like Tim Scott stand behind him grinning. So he thinks that that somehow he is aligned with black people. There are people in this country who see Donald Trump for who he is. He is a racist. He is a bigot. He is telling you all of the quiet parts out loud. So you don't have to pretend or really figure or wonder. I wonder what he's thinking. I wonder what he will do when he becomes president. He's telling you he will be a dictator. He's telling you women can't have bodily autonomy. He's telling you he doesn't want people to vote. Pay attention. Right. Like all of the things that he is saying, he means and he will do. And the fact is, is that the Republican Party has thought very little about black people, don't care about black people and don't want black people to be active participants in this country, period. So, Lucy, you've got Nikki Haley hanging on by a thread in her own home state of South Carolina. Her messaging to voters is I could beat Joe Biden in a general. I respectfully disagree with Nikki Haley. But realistically speaking, what's the best case scenario? Her name is clearly never going to make a short list for VP. Yeah, I think that what is important is to figure out what Nikki Haley is going to do when she inevitably does not get the Republican nomination. You're right. We know she's not going to beat Trump. And so what she does next is really what's important, because all of the other people who were running for the Republican nomination have fallen in line. You see people like Tim Scott out this week stumping for Trump and, and really behaving in quite an appalling way and, and, and just sort of being silent when Donald Trump said something like, you know, Tim Scott doesn't like talking about himself, but he loves talking about Trump. You can see how the these people that even kind of like never Trump adjacent Republicans, sort of Coke world, folks like that, were pinning their hopes on, like Tim Scott, have all fallen in line with Donald Trump. So what is Nikki Haley going to do? We know she's not going to win the nomination. Is she also going to fall in line? And people in a position like mine, people who work uh, as never Trump ex-Republicans, never Trump Republicans, are really waiting to see. Because if Nikki Haley stays the course and she goes the way of someone like Liz Cheney and comes out and says, unequivocally, this man is a menace to democracy. He's an existential threat to the American way of life. She can have a very, very powerful voice in the 2024 election and hopefully beyond. Uh, if she doesn't, if she does the thing that we've seen so many of them do, which is just sort of be like, just kidding. Actually, I think he's a great guy. Let's all go uh, you know, vote for Donald Trump. That will be very, very disappointing. And ultimately, I think that will make the progress that she's making right now and the, the powerfulness of her campaign at this moment 
all for naught. So people like me are really hoping that Nikki Haley stays the course in speaking out about the truth of this situation. Yeah, so Danielle, obviously this week Republicans are struggling with how to react to that Alabama Supreme Court ruling that frozen embryos created through IVF are considered children now under state law. Early in the week, Nikki Haley seemed to support that ruling, but then she later walked back on those comments. And listen, it's not just exclusive to her. The New York Times reporting Senate Republicans, the campaign arm is urging candidates to actually support IVF. I have to ask, did Republicans step in it again? That Alabama Supreme Court is all Republicans. We're now in 2024, decision 2024. Danielle, is IVF the next one-issue vote coming up in November? It's going to be IVF, Katie, and it's also going to be birth control. They are not stopping, right? Republicans are showing us exactly what a, you know, after Roe v. Wade America they want, right? And when you listen to that judge's ruling in Alabama, when he is talking and invoking biblical scripture and God and all of these things, what happened to the separation between church and state? Right. What happened to our ability to function inside of a democracy? They want a theocracy. They want white Christian nationalist rule. And so I don't care if Republicans today want to say, oh, IVF went too far, because what they are doing is just playing hide and go seek with who they really are for the voters. Right. We have seen every time that abortion, that reproductive health care is put on the ballot, they lose. And so people have to understand that what they are doing in Alabama, what they are doing in Texas and across these red states, they will nationalize if it is Donald Trump or if it's Nikki Haley who becomes who becomes the next president. So, Lucy, while Donald Trump is racking up millions in damages, President Biden racking up wins this week, raising $42 million for his reelection campaign just in the month of January. Biden also announcing the cancellation of federal student loan debt for nearly 153,000 borrowers. What more should Biden be doing right now as he watches Trump and Haley battle it out? Well, I know that people may not like this answer, but I'm actually not sure that things like a focus on student loan debt is actually what Joe Biden should be doing right now. I think that Joe Biden should be talking to center and continuing to make the case that he is the person who's going to bring reasonable moderation to our political system, that he is the person who was going to deliver on the border bill, that he is the person who's uh, helping Americans get back to a way of politicking where both sides could come across the aisle and actually get legislation done and get it to his desk that he's willing to sign. So I think that all of these things are good. It's great to see those fundraising returns. But I think that Joe Biden should continue to stay the course to try to bring into the fold those people that we call double haters. Those are people who are disaffected Republicans or independents who, you know, don't really like Trump or Biden. But ultimately, we hope that they will come home for Biden in this election, as they did in 2020. So I think that's what he needs to be doing. And then stylistically, Joe Biden just needs to be Joe Biden. He had some great moments this week where he made jokes about his age. He showed people that he knows how to take selfies on cell phones. And frankly, I think sometimes Joe Biden's team is playing three-dimensional chess where they're afraid that he's going to make a gaffe or that his age will become an issue. And when they run right into the things that Republicans are trying to make his vulnerabilities, that's really when Joe Biden is at his best. And I hope that we continue to see more and more of that version of Joe Biden as he ramps up the campaign trail. Daniel Moody, Lucy Caldwell, thank you so much for getting us started today. I appreciate it. And MSNBC is going to have special coverage of the South Carolina primary starting today at 4 o'clock Eastern with my colleagues Jen Psaki and Jonathan Capehart. Then at 6.30, Rachel Maddow and the team will pick up analysis with Steve Kornacki at the big board.
But still to come on the Katie Fang Show, creeping Christian nationalism, how Alabama's Supreme Court is using the threat of, quote, God's wrath to determine women's control over their own bodies, destroying the separation of church and state as the Republican Party twists itself into knots to both support and oppose IVF. But first, Trump's cash crunch. The millions just keep stacking up against the former president, raising big questions about his financial solvency and whether or not he's even going to be able to afford appealing the eye-popping judgments racking up against him. That's up next. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett, on the rise of Christian nationalism, and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place every day, each morning in your inbox with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Understand today's news. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. The twice-impeached, quadruple-indicted, one-term ex-president, Donald Trump, soon may join the billionaire boys club for the wrong reasons. Trump's legal woes are costing him big bucks. Yesterday, a New York clerk officially recorded the $464 million judgment in the civil fraud case brought by the New York Attorney General's office. And now the question becomes, will Trump appeal? And frankly, can he even afford to do so? And while Trump rummages through Mar-a-Lago for spare change, the interest on his judgment is growing by a staggering rate of $111,000 a day until it's paid off. New York Attorney General Letitia James had this to say about the judgment. If he does not have funds uh, to pay off the judgment, uh, then we will seek, uh, you know, judgment enforcement mechanisms in court. And we will ask the judge to seize his assets. Also yesterday, in a desperate bid to stall for time, Trump's attorneys pleaded with a New York judge to stay execution of the judgment in the E. Jean Carroll case, where Trump is on the hook for more than $83 million in damages. The bond in that case? $91.63 million. Joining me now is Joyce Vance, MSNBC legal analyst, former U.S. attorney in Alabama, and the co-host of the Hashtag Sisters in Law podcast. So, Joyce, let's start with Trump and money, because that's what he thinks makes the world go round, but he's hemorrhaging it at this point. The New York clerk formally recording that judgment ordering Trump to pay $454 million in that New York attorney general's case, plus prejudgment interest, plus daily interest. I mean, if he's going to appeal, Joyce, he's going to have to post a bond that's 120 percent of that total judgment. By my math, it's about 600 something million dollars if you combine that with the aging Carroll verdict. I mean, talk about how that bond actually is achieved. There's been some back and forth about his ability to appeal absent being able to post that bond. He can always ask the court for a modification, I suppose. But the reality is that like every other litigant, if Donald Trump wants to take an appeal, he's got to post an appeal bond that's required by the rules of procedure. And it's in there for a good reason. It's a way of guaranteeing that the losing party following trial 
will be able to make good on the judgment and they aren't just using the appeal for purposes of delay and avoiding accountability. So that, I think, rings home with Donald Trump. Katie, you raise an interesting question. What if he can't get a bond together? What if he Mm -hmm. is in a position where Tish James begins to collect on the judgment? You know, you can envision a world where Donald Trump turns this into a political argument. They're out to get me and tries to avoid her collection efforts. It really could be a political mess heading into the election. I rarely, if ever, disagree with you. In fact, I defer to you all the time, but I will disagree that I think he's already begun to make it a political argument from day one. And that's the perfect segue into the next case I wanted to touch on with you, Joyce. Mar-a-Lago, in my home state of Florida, Trump filing a slew of motions a couple of nights ago, one of which that was particularly noteworthy, a motion to dismiss based on presidential immunity. Some of the arguments were familiar. We've seen them in the Chutkin case in D.C. in his January 6th election interference case. But he also raised an interesting argument that he declassified the classified materials with his mind, of course, the Jedi mind trick that he does. And then he made them personal records so he's able to take them wherever the hell he wanted to. Talk about that. Yeah, so this argument is flawed. It's deeply flawed. For one thing, at best, it would apply to the charges in the indictment that he took the documents from the White House with them. They don't have any force against the obstruction charges. But they're more deeply flawed than that to the extent that he suggests that he had the power to do this. You know, you can't convert classified material into some sort of personal property of a president or something covered by the Presidential Records Act. And this motion has only one purpose. It'll come as no surprise to you, Katie. It's to delay the proceedings, because in Mm -hmm. the hands of Judge Eileen Cannon, who has not shown a willingness to move quickly, she can sit on this motion for some period of time. It will likely be one of the nails in the coffin that removes this case from a trial track for May. So, Joyce, let's stay on it for a second, though. Let's talk about the gift that Trump maybe gave to Aileen Cannon in the instance of the filing of that motion. The reason why I say that is because Trump's application for a stay of that presidential immunity you know, case, the mandate, right? He's asked the Supreme Court of the United States to take at, give him the time to be able to appeal. Do you think now, based upon the fact he filed a presidential immunity, uh, immunity motion in Mar-a-Lago, that that kind of forces the hand of SCOTUS to maybe take up his appeal? So that's such an interesting question. You know, when we talk about forcing their hand, we're normally thinking about a circuit split where Cannon would rule either for or against Trump and the issue would go to appeal to the 11th Circuit. And if they ruled differently than the Court of Appeals in the District of Columbia, then maybe the Supreme Court would feel obligated to take the case. But I think your point is actually a more sophisticated one that suggests that now that the argument is percolating in multiple courts, rather than just letting the Court of Appeals judgment in D.C. stand, the Supreme Court may have to create Uh, law for the entire country on this issue. And you're absolutely right to think that that could slow the process down. I think the Supreme Court can simply make the argument that they will decide the case that's in front of them and that other courts can make whatever they will of it. Trump's presidential immunity argument is just so weak. We've talked about the consequences. It would unleash Joe Biden, for instance, to do whatever he wanted to do to stay in power following the 2020 election. Tough to see the 11th Circuit doing anything other than adopting the reasoning of the District of Columbia. 
Well, Joyce, we got the scheduling conference coming up on Friday, March 1st in Fort Pierce. I agree with you. And I think Aileen Cannon is going to keep this on the, the May trial docket. Thank you so much for being here, Joyce. It's always so good to see you. And coming up after the break, dodging disaster. GOP Speaker Mike Johnson says he's got a new plan to avert a partial government shutdown next week. Democratic Congressman Robert Garcia joins me next on the stakes on Capitol Hill and what it could mean for the future of critical foreign aid. Don't go anywhere. So we're just days away from yet another potential government shutdown. But there may be hope on the horizon. According to two sources, House Speaker Mike Johnson unveiled his plan to avert a shutdown on a call with House Republicans last night, which would be great, except Congress is out on recess until Wednesday. And even if the House can pull it together for a vote by Thursday, the Senate still needs to vote, approve it and get it on the president's desk before the government shuts down on March 1st. Joining me now is Congressman Robert Garcia of California. He's a member of the House Oversight and Department of Homeland Security Committees. Congressman, Speaker Johnson, God bless him, and the House GOP reportedly working through this weekend with Democrats to come to an agreement on the four appropriations bills needed to avert a shutdown. We've done this four different times, right? We keep on pushing, you know, kicking the can down the road. Have you actually seen this plan yourself? And do you think it's going to work? So, no, I mean, I haven't seen the plan yet. We we understand that it's some sort of short-term extension uh, to the current budget, so we avert a shutdown. I mean, look, unfortunately, this is just chaos, more chaos, and more chaos over and over again. Uh, we've had a chance to do the right thing on multiple occasions, but Speaker Johnson has no control of his Republican caucus. He continues to listen to the extreme right-wing fringe that control uh, the current Republican Party in Congress. And so I have no confidence that we're actually going to get anything done. Um, extreme, extreme conservatives keep trying to insert all sorts of real crazy ideas into our budget process around access to women's reproductive health, around discriminating LGBTQ plus people. And so time and time again, Speaker Johnson has shown us that he cannot control and deliver for the American people. And so we're waiting to see what this plan actually looks like. I'm hopeful that we can obviously avert a shutdown. There are millions of jobs at stake and millions of people that depend on services. Yes, and we also just got word a short time ago, the body of Alexei Navalny has been handed over to his mother. It comes after Biden levied more than 500 sanctions against Russia and on the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Congressman, do you think these sanctions will have any effect? And more importantly, do you think the House can actually finally agree on a plan to send necessary aid to Ukraine? I mean, obviously, I support um, the president's approach here, uh, but but let's be real clear: we are we are in a very dangerous situation as it relates to Ukraine, and essentially, uh, much of the um, extremists in Congress bending the knee to Putin. Uh, we have a serious situation in Ukraine and in Eastern Europe. We have a democracy that needs our support and help. We cannot leave them out to dry. Uh, Putin continues to engage, continues to pummel Ukraine, uh, and we cannot get a national. Security security package on to the House floor, because Mike Johnson, once again, continues to listen to whatever Donald Trump orders him to do. We know that Ukraine needs our support 
now. We need to vote on that funding immediately. And we've heard that we are in a situation, we are weeks away from ser- from causing serious damage to this effort. And so uh, we are urging Mike Johnson to bring forward the Ukraine funding package immediately onto the House floor. The president has done so as well. And why we're listening to Donald Trump and why we are ex- essentially supporting Putin's war is completely lunacy to me. So it's time to vote to support Ukraine today. And while the Republicans' chaos caucus continues to control House Republicans, Republicans continue to waste Americans' time and money. I have to put this tweet up that you did. I love it. This is the next star witness for the House Republicans on their fruitless quest to impeach President Joe Biden. We have to talk about Alexander Smirnoff, the GOP star witness now accused and being indicted of lying under oath to the federal government. The FBI also saying that Smirnoff has proven ties to Russian intelligence officials. I mean, Congressman, it's it's their playbook, right? You, you just throw something on the wall. You slander people along the way. You have zero evidence. You hope something sticks. And yet look what's happened, right? Chinese whistleblower. Uh, you know, you've got Smirnoff. You've got Devin Archer says no, Biden didn't do anything to help Hunter. I mean, it's just never ending. Why can they not get out of their own way and actually help Americans? I mean, this whole thing is such a scam. I mean, it's unbelievable uh, the, the level of, at this point, of joke this whole impeachment process has become. And you're absolutely right, Katie. We've got Chinese spies. We've got Russian intelligence. We've got discredited witnesses. I mean, you literally couldn't make this up for a movie. And, and now, we, of course, we know, and this is really serious, that a Russian intelligence has likely directly been involved with evidence collection the Republicans are now using for this impeachment scam. And so we have serious questions. What does James Comer know? When did he know it? Why is he possibly working with Russian intelligence, at least their information, to damage the president? I think the reason why this is all falling apart is, as you've said, there is zero evidence linking President Biden to any sort of wrongdoing. There is nothing there. But why do they continue to scramble? Why do they continue to push all these tinfoil hat conspiracy theories? It's because Donald Trump is ordering them to do so. All this is about is trying to damage President Biden and his reelection opportunity. And we also know that, once again, this is Russian election interference. And so we've got to be honest about what's happening here and push back forcefully. No, and I appreciate you saying that, Congressman, because, you know, the GOP's also often tried to poo-poo the fact that there's been Russian interference in our election system in the United States. And yet this is hard and fast proof. And if the GOP continues to tie itself being married to this, then it's just like being married to Vladimir Putin. Congressman Robert Garcia, I'm always grateful for your voice. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Coming up next after the break, damage control inside the GOP's desperate about face on the Alabama Supreme Court's decision to recognize personhood for frozen embryos as other states push to enshrine abortion rights in their constitutions. Keep it right here. I strongly support the availability of IVF for couples who are trying to have a precious little beautiful baby. I support it. That's Donald Trump, who loves to trumpet how he alone is responsible for the demise of Roe v. Wade, backpedaling, though, last night. In the wake of last week's Alabama State Supreme Court decision defining children now to include frozen embryos. 
The Republican Party is also scrambling to deal with the fallout of that ruling, incapable of finding a unified, cohesive response. And women's health care is in dangerous disarray yet again. Multiple Alabama hospitals have paused IVF procedures indefinitely. And nationwide, embryo shipping services have stopped transporting to and from Alabama. This is very personal for me. We were blessed with the gift of my daughter because of IVF. I'm pro-choice. What I do with my remaining frozen embryos is exactly that, my choice. As a lawyer, I also believe in the rule of law. But if I didn't go through IVF, I wouldn't have my little girl. This Alabama decision is a dream stealer, taking away the chance for so many to have a family. It's unjust, cruel, and a dangerous harbinger of Christian nationalism destroying our individual rights. Joining me now is the senior writer for Slate, Mark Joseph Stern. Mark, you've been tip of spear on this Alabama decision straight when it came out. I needed you to be on the show to talk about it so people really understood the import of what just happened. People who do IVF want to have children. They want to grow their families. Now they may not be able to do so. Is this the end of IVF, at least in the state of Alabama? It certainly is for now, unless the legislature acts. And even then, the Alabama Supreme Court has strongly suggested that it will not allow IVF to go on as currently practiced in accordance with best standards, even if the legislature steps in and attempts to legalize it. These hospitals and clinics and shipping services that have ended all kind of business or transfers or practice within the state of Alabama, they are sadly acting quite rationally. Under Alabama law, embryos are now the equivalent of children. That means that the destruction of embryos could potentially be homicide, which means that the way that IVF works, the mm. fundamental system of in vitro fertilization could be a criminal act and is at a minimum uh, potentially the equivalent of killing a child that could subject clinics to millions in damages. You know, Mark, you tweeted the other day that this ruling is a direct result of Dobbs. Some of us have warned that because of Dobbs, uh, abortion medication, mifepristone, was going to be on the chopping block. Look what's happening right now. Now we see IVF, contraception's probably also going to be around the corner. I mean, talk about the chilling effect that has happened because of this Dobbs decision. Yeah. So first of all, let's be clear. The Alabama Supreme Court cited Dobbs repeatedly for the proposition that embryos are human beings with equal protection under the law. I've seen Republicans try to distance Dobbs from this ruling. Absolutely not. They are fundamentally intertwined. Um, and that is because what Dobbs did was give states absolute leeway to define when life began and when that so-called life could receive protection under the law. Now, at the time, I think most people People thought about this as uh, abortion, right? A, a fetus, uh, when that fetus could be terminated, when a woman experiencing a, a medical emergency during pregnancy could get an abortion. You know, those were the immediate issues. But Dobbs also applies to IVF because it has allowed Alabama to fully implement a state constitutional amendment that says that essentially embryos are humans, embryos are life, and they uh, merit this kind of sweeping protection that, uh, just to note, 
is not granted to actual human beings and actual children in Alabama who are some of the most impoverished and undereducated children in the entire country. Um, so this is not only a direct result of Dobbs in terms of precedent, but in terms of the Supreme Court's reasoning, freeing states to take these extreme steps. Uh, it just could not have happened if Trump had not appointed the three justices who led the way in overturning Roe v. Wade. Yeah, and Mark, the Chief Justice Greg Parker of the Alabama Supreme Court wrote a concurrence that nobody else signed on to, and maybe they thought it was just as nutty as we all thought it is, but I'm not being casual about this. Parker went on a QAnon uh, interviewer show. He talks about how Christian nationalism is the way to go. He infused biblical passages into his concurrence and talked about how it's the invocation of the wrath of God to be able to, you know, dispose of embryos. And anyway, how is this not disqualifying, Mark, for a judge to be able to be promoting this type of philosophy and then infusing it directly into an opinion? Opinion that is filed in a court. Yeah, I think the, the question really is, how could this opinion possibly withstand constitutional muster under the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, sure. which guarantees the separation of church and state? And here again, we have to look to SCOTUS. We have to look to the United States Supreme Court, which in a series of decisions, especially in 2022's Kennedy versus Bremerton, absolutely eviscerated what remained of the separation of church and state, took away these key protections against the infusion of religion and government and essentially free judges like Chief Justice Parker to implement their own extremist evangelical ideology as part of state law. The Supreme Court took away all of the remaining safeguards that shielded us as a pluralistic society, as citizens of many different religions, from the state imposing one specific religious belief on all of us. So again, you know, Chief Justice Parker appears to be a real kook. Affiliations with QAnon, his decision is outrageous, but it just doesn't happen and it doesn't have legal force if the United States Supreme Court hadn't given him free reign to do this. Our thanks to the Supreme Court justices once again, Mark. Mark Joseph Stern, I want you to come back. Let's keep on tracking what happens with this decision and, and hopefully it doesn't have even more of a ripple effect. But thanks for being here. I appreciate you. Thanks, Katie. Coming up next, misspent millions. After a civil week-long civil corruption trial in New York, a jury found the NRA and its former leader on the hook for millions of dollars. What the verdict could mean for gun safety across the United States. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. It took five days of deliberations for a New York jury to find the National Rifle Association and its former leader, Wayne LaPierre, liable in a civil corruption case that was brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James. 
LaPierre, along with other NRA executives, were found to have failed to properly run that gun lobbying group, with the jury finding that LaPierre misspent millions of NRA dollars on lavish spending, including vacations, luxury flights and yacht rides for himself and his relatives. It's a huge financial blow for an organization which was once a major voice in gun control and politics, but it's definitely seen its membership numbers fall by millions in recent years. Joining me now for more on this conversation is Fred Guttenberg, the father of Jamie Guttenberg, who was killed in the Parkland shooting. He's also the co-author of American Carnage, Shattering the Myths that Fuel Gun Violence. Fred, I I say it's an honor for you to join me, um, and it always is for you to spend the time. And I was saying during the break, you are tireless when it comes to the advocacy that you provide. I know you've been fighting the NRA for years. What does that verdict say to you? First, I hope Wayne rots in hell. Um, My daughter was accosted doing business for a lobby that he built, um, for an industry that profited off of gun violence and death. And the verdict says to me that accountability is coming. Here's the thing. That industry still exists. The NRA still exists. Other entities that are even more extreme than the NRA still exist. America, if you're as fed up as I am, you have a response that now comes in just nine months. It's called Election Day. Vote, 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 as if this is an issue that matters to you more than any other, because it should. And because democracy matters to you and because this issue is so important, you and Joe Walsh have actually gone on a tour, the Two Dads Defending Democracy Tour. Talk about that because I'm interested. You and Joe have crossed divides (laughs) um, that some of us maybe would never have anticipated. I myself, you know, have had some really meaningful conversations with Joe. Why was it important for the two of you to take take it on the road to share messaging? Because a few years ago, um, and going back to the NRA, the day after my daughter was killed, I walked in my house after the Parkland vigil, and I said, I'm going to break the effing gun lobby. And, and demonizing people like Joe mm-hmm. was a part of that, you know, because I just thought they were wrong. And then about two years after that, Joe reached out to me and said, we should talk. And we did. And that conversation led us both to realize we like each other, that there's a lot we actually agree on, that there is a lot together that um, we can say to the country that will be helpful. And so we've decided to do that. Um, You know, listen, Joe and I, we don't agree on all the issues, but we agree, agree on enough that we could solve things. And we agree on democracy and we agree on the importance of this upcoming election and we agree on the necessity to reelect President Biden and give him a Congress he can work with. Because what we're seeing from the other party right now is disgusting, despicable. Watching the former guy mock an audience yesterday just because he knows it'll turn out his maggot vote, it is it is it is simply reprehensible and Joe and I want to talk to the country and convince them their vote matters and they need to vote. So you are one of the strongest advocates that I have met. You always you always bring 150 percent, if not more, of yourself 
because of Jamie, because of Jesse, your son, <laughs> um, and because of Jennifer, your wife. And I bring them up because when you showed up today, and I'm not sure if we can see it, you are wearing these orange Skechers, which are, were made just for you and Jennifer. But it, it reminds me of Paws. Of love. Of love. Yeah. It's an organization that I want people to understand what it's about and why you and Jennifer decided to start it. When my daughter was killed, um, we had a five-year-old dog in the house, but we also had a four-month-old puppy. And I tell people all the time, those dogs saved my family. Mm. And my wife, uh, about two years ago while we were driving, said, I want to start something where we can help families affected by gun violence. And we immediately knew it had to involve dogs. My daughter, Jamie, was obsessed with her dogs. My dogs are my kids. And so we started Paws of Love. And what it is is we give eight to 10 week old golden doodle puppies to families affected by gun violence and the entire first year. Everything they could possibly need, medical, medical insurance, food, training, the crate, the toys, everything because we want families to know that even when affected by gun violence, that there's a way that you can connect with others through love and support. And we're hoping that we can show them that love and support and help them through this most horrible time in their life. Our dogs helped us, and we're now looking to help other families. And for people who want to know more, yeah. just go to the Orange Ribbons for Jamie website. The whole program is there. You can apply there. We are there for you. You know, Fred, very quickly, before I have to let you go, you are a reminder that this trauma happens, these tragedies happen, and then the headlines go by, right? But then the families are left to have to pick up the pieces. Um, and we are, you know, listen, it is so true. The only horrific part of that is gun violence keeps on happening and we keep getting reminded. And I will only say this um, to anyone who is affected by gun violence, and you know this, yeah. um, we are a community of survivors that stand with one another and always will. And we also uh, have this opportunity right now in front of us to continue the great work that has happened the past few years to reduce gun violence. You all need to show up and vote. This election matters unlike any other. Don't sit it out. Don't sit home. Show up and vote. Fred Guttenberg, my friend. Thank you. I'm always Appreciate so grateful you. for you. My gosh. And I want to thank all of you for joining us today. You can catch me back here next Saturday at noon Eastern. Remember to follow us on social media using the handle at Katie Fang Show. You can also catch clips of the show on YouTube. And don't forget, you can now listen to every episode of the show as a podcast for free. Scan that QR code on your screen to follow now. And don't forget to tune in for tonight's special coverage on MSNBC of the South Carolina primary starting at 4 Eastern with my colleagues Jen Psaki and Jonathan K. Part. Then at 6.30, Rachel Maddow and the team will pick up analysis with Steve Kornacki at the big board.